You're listening to Gruesome and Unnatural, a true crime podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Gruesome and Unnatural. I'm Shelly. And I'm Eric, and this is episode 33. Yeah, thanks for tuning in to another episode. We appreciate you all being here. Another shout out to my girl Stephanie. She sent me the uh, story of Mary Bell, and yeah, she recommended this one. It's fucking wild, so I had to do it. We're going to make it a two-part episode because there's a lot of information on this case. So also, um, thanks for all the new followers on an app called Podbean, which is the platform that I use for our podcast. So thank you. I I see all you and I appreciate the love. Um, That's another way you can actually listen and check out our website where you can find photos and information about the websites. It's gruesomeandunatural.podbean.com. So go check it out if you feel so inclined to do so. So are you ready for today's case? Yep. Let's get into it. Thomas Donald Bruce MacArthur, known as Bruce MacArthur, was born on October 8, 1951 in Lindsay, Ontario, Canada. Bruce was raised along with his sister Sandra Sherman, now Sandra Burton, by his mother and father on a farm in Argyle, which is located near Woodville in the Kawartha Lakes region. Not only did Bruce's parents raise him and his sister, they fostered children that had troubled pasts um, from Ontario. Bruce's parents usually fostered anywhere from six to ten children. And That's they, a lot. I know. Can you imagine, like, on top of their two biological children? That's, that's a lot of kids. And they had a good, very good reputation in doing so, according to friends of theirs. As a child, Bruce attended a one-room schoolhouse right outside of Woodville. Other children in Bruce's class claimed that he was a teacher's pet, and he would always tell his teacher when boys that he didn't get along with were, like, acting up and stuff. Bruce loved to sing, and he went on to win like several singing contests too just a little side note his child doesn't seem so horrific right like all these other cases we hear all these like crazy things happening to these kids being neglected or sexual abuse or whatever so that you know contributes to their lifestyle so it's kind of weird that you don't really hear you know just like he's maybe telling on kids at school but like he seemed to have a great life and great parents right like nothing seems so crazy but Mm -hmm. although this is where events may change a little bit for bruce His mother was a devout Irish Catholic woman, while his father was a devout Scottish Presbyterian. This created many arguments when it came to Bruce and his father, because his father believed that he favored his mom and her religious beliefs. Just because of that, his father started to ridicule him, and he became way stricter with Bruce. Bruce doesn't believe that was the only reason that his father was so strict with him. One thing I didn't tell you so far is that Bruce struggled with accepting his sexual orientation and thought that maybe his father knew that he may be a homosexual and that he was mad and angry at him because of that reason. So he just kind of assumed, oh, maybe my dad knows that I potentially might be gay and maybe that's why he's being so strict and, you know, ridiculing him and stuff. This is the mid-60s, so according to my research, you know, I mean, just because I think we all know, being homosexual in Ontario was seen as abnormal, which in a lot of places were like that, right? Probably in that yeah. in that time. Many, you know, in Especially the Especially with US. super religious exactly. parents. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, many states in the U.S. were the same way, too. So at this point, Bruce started his secondary education at Fenelon Falls Secondary School, which is a public high school located at 66 Lindsay Street. 
This is where Bruce meets a woman by the name of Janice Campbell, and the two began dating. Bruce and Janice graduate from Fenelon Falls in 1970, and Bruce went on to graduate from a program for general business. Not too long after that, when Bruce was 23 years old, he marries Janice. Not sure where he was working prior, but three years after they were married, Bruce, in 1973, Bruce began working at Eaton's department store as a buyer's assistant, which was located in downtown Toronto. Five years later, Bruce was employed as a traveling salesman selling McGregor socks. This was the same time that Bruce and Janice bought a new house on Ormond Street in Oshawa. Later on, he went to work for Stanfields, which is a garment company, working as a merchandising representative. In between the time he was working at Eaton's and the traveling salesman, Bruce's father was diagnosed with a brain tumor and he had to live in a nursing home. His mother started to take interest in other men, and this really pissed off Bruce, bringing him like a little closer to his father now. Although it was around this time that his mother was diagnosed with cancer and she ended up dying in 1978, his father passed away three years later in 1981. In that same year, Janice and Bruce welcomed their daughter, Melanie, and their son, Todd. Five years later, in 1986, the couple bought a new house on Cartriff Avenue in Oshawa, and this, it was there that Bruce became very active with his new church. But the only reason he was going to church was to keep himself busy of like any homosexual thoughts or feelings that he was having, which is... So fucking sad that he had to do that, you know, that he couldn't just be himself and not go on to be such a horrible person as you'll see. Just like, be yourself, man. <laughs> Don't cover it up by the church. Anyways, it was now the early 1990s and Bruce started acting on his sexual desires with men and was starting to have many affairs with multiple men with obviously without his, his wife knowing. Although a year into his sexual affairs with men, he did come clean to his wife and she kind of just accepted it, and the two stayed married, and they kept living under the same roof. In 1993, Bruce ended up losing his job at the garment company, and the two started to struggle like crazy, like you know, financially. Not only were they struggling with making money for the family, but some of that money was going to legal fees in connection with their teenage son, Todd, at the time. Their son, like I said, Todd, was obsessed with making phone calls to girls that he didn't know and would say lewd and offensive things to them. Fucking weird. I wonder if he would just like pick up the phone and be like, oh, I'm going to dial a number and call some random per like chick or something and say some stupid shit. But dealing with that whole situation with their son not making enough money really took a toll on their relationship. So the couple actually decided to separate in 1997. Bruce then moved himself to Toronto to an apartment on Don Mills Road where he attempted to find a job as a landscaper. But not only that, he would finally get to be himself and go out to bars in a place called Church in Wellesley, which is known as Toronto's Gay Village. According to Wikipedia, Church in Wellesley is an LBGTQ plus oriented enclave in Toronto, Canada. Though some gay and lesbian-oriented establishments can be found outside the area, the general boundaries of this village has been identified or has been defined by Gay Toronto Tourism Guild. Bruce would go on to have a four-year relationship with another man, but that relationship ended about the same time his divorce from Janice was being finalized. Bruce started to see a psychiatrist who prescribed him Prozac, and this is when things kind of took a bizarre turn for Bruce. It is Halloween day in the middle of the day on October 31st, 2001, and 50-year-old Bruce came across actor Mark Henderson. 
As Mark was heading into his apartment building, he noticed a man behind him walking into the apartment as well, you know, so he just held the door open for him, thinking maybe he's going to like the superintendent's office, which was kind of like located down the hallway from Mark's apartment. Thinking nothing of it, Mark goes to unlock his front door while Bruce takes out a pipe that he had and he starts beating Mark over the head with it like over and over again. And Mark just passes out and Bruce takes off. When Mark finally woke up from being unconscious, he calls 911 and he was taken to St. Michael's Hospital. Mark had suffered from a fractured skull, his hand was beat up and damaged, and he had a fractured finger. In an interview later on, Mark stated, quote, I remember feeling the indentation in my skull. He had popped my skull in. I have a nursing background. I see cerebral spinal fluid and blood coming down. And I think I'm going to lose consciousness in a matter of seconds. And he was not going to stop, unquote. Ugh, can you just imagine feeling your own Damn. hand? You just got beaten. Fuck. Crazy enough, Bruce did turn himself in after this attack on Mark. And he pled guilty to assault with a weapon and assault causing bodily harm, but stated that he had no recollection of the incident whatsoever. Bruce received no time in jail for this. He didn't spend one day. He was sentenced to one year on house arrest. And after that one year, he had to spend six months with a curfew and three years probation. The psychiatrist suggested that Bruce was at low risk of reoffending. There's now also a restraining order against him from going to church in Wellesley, and he had to stay at least 10 meters or 33 feet from Mark's house or where Mark was employed. And Bruce was not allowed to hang out with any of like the male sex workers, pretty much. He couldn't have any firearms for 10 years. He wasn't allowed to purchase, possess, or consume drugs that were not prescribed to him. He had to submit a DNA sample as well as attending sessions with a psychiatrist and a psychologist and taking anger management. Mind you, while he was in and out of court for that you know, assault charge, Bruce signed up to a gay fetish dating website for men into BDSM called Recon. Because obviously he's hot on house arrest, right? So what else is he going to do? Yeah. Got to go on the internet. On this site, Bruce's profile stated that he was interested in submissive men. Not only, <laughs> not only was he on this website, but he was also on Silver Daddies, Man Jam, Grinder, Bear 411, Bear Forest, Scruff, Daddy Hunt, Squirt, and Growler. Yikes. <laughs> Lots of websites. Man Jam. <laughs> Okay, so Bruce was living in an apartment at Leaside Towers in Thorncliff Park, still relatively close to Church and Wellesley. Bruce was starting to get very well known in this area for his love of BDSM and rough sex. Bruce then joined Facebook at this time, and he would post pictures of him partying and on vacation, celebrating birthdays, going to concerts, because at this point he was no longer on house arrest. In many of these photos on Facebook were men of South Asian or Middle Eastern descent, and Bruce was now working as a self-employed landscaper under the business name Artistic Designs. On his off-season, he would go to Agincourt Mall to be Santa Claus for the season. Because yeah. you'll see when I post pictures, it kind of looks, you know, if he had more of a beard, I guess. Well, nothing better than a Santa Claus with the background of having the roughest sex in the city with TSM <laughs> man jam. Exactly. Like, is that on your resume? And you're like, you're hired for little kids to sit on your lap. <laughs> Right? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Horrible. Anyway, so back to landscaping, though. A man who installed water features on several of Bruce's projects stated that Bruce was more of a gardener, and he worked out of his little van with, like, very old tools back there. 
While Bruce seemed to be enjoying life, landscaping, enjoying the Toronto's gay village as much as he could, many men in the area started to go missing. On September 6, 2010, 40-year-old Skandaraj Navratnam, he goes missing. He was a refugee from Sri Lanka and was last seen leaving a now-closed gay bar by the name of Zippers from the Toronto's gay village. His friend reported him missing September 16th. Friends did notice that a man named Bruce had actually employed him and kind of had like sexual relationships in the past. And they also noticed that the two were friends on Facebook. So that was kind of weird. Just three months later, 42-year-old Abdul Bazar Fazi was last seen in the Toronto's gay village on December 29th, 2010. Officers believe that he just kind of up and left his wife and his two daughters. So his wife just ended up filing for divorce, which I thought was so bizarre. So bizarre. Police did locate his 2002 Nissan Sentra abandoned on Moore Avenue near a home that happened to be one of Bruce's landscaping clients. So his wife was just like, you know what? He's gone. Let's get over this and divorce. Cool. I'm out. Exactly. Yeah. Like he just kind of abandoned them and left. It was like, what? What? I'm going to go find her husband. Almost two years go by when 58-year-old Majid Kahan, who was an Afghan immigrant, was reported missing on October 18th, 2012 by his son. In November of the same year, the task force launched Project Houston to investigate more into all these missing men in the area, these three men specifically. On November 11th, 2013, an anonymous tip came in linking Bruce to the disappearances, so police took him in for questioning. Bruce admitted to knowing the men and that he had interactions with them at a gay bar in the past, but denied like any relationships pretty much. Bruce even admitted to hiring Majid, but police found no evidence that linked Bruce to committing any crime, so he was free to go. April of 2014, police end up closing Project Houston, saying that police couldn't find any suspects that linked them to these missing men. Although Bruce was kind of on their suspect radar, you know, like list the entire time. But they couldn't really prove anything, so. In the same year, Bruce was granted a pardon on the case of Mark Henderson, the man that he beat over the head with a fucking pipe, which means that this offense would not, like, no longer appear on any criminal background checks. Like, why? I don't understand. I don't understand. Yeah, that's crazy. He randomly beat some dude over the head, and then they're like, no, we're just going to pardon this. Let it go. Also, that same year, in 2014, Bruce's son, Todd, was sentenced to 14 months for making multiple obscene phone calls so like what the hell dude like like i said earlier this is todd his son when he was younger he was obsessed with making phone calls to girls that he didn't know and would say lewd and offensive things to them so now he's older and he can't stop himself from doing the shit so now he gets sentenced to jail wow <laughs> like what the hell is he thinking i don't understand so yeah uh, he was ordered to stay with his father after he was released from from jail on bail and he had to help out his father with the landscaping business and while living with his father one of his friends had to come over one night and he came across a wall in bruce's bathroom and it was covered in photos of naked men with erections and the majority of them were east indian how weird is that you go to your friend's house and their dad's bathroom's covered in yeah yeah. So, but originally Todd, like, he had a really hard time accepting his father's sexuality. So he ended up bringing the, this up to his father and, like, during breakfast the next morning. And Bruce kind of just, like, laughed about it. He just laughed over it and didn't say much. One year and four months go by after closing Project Houston when 50 year old Shorsh Mamudi 
of Toronto goes missing on August 14th, 2015, who was an immigrant from Iran. Sharush was a manufacturing plant worker and was reported missing by his wife, who had uh, he had actually met after moving to Canada from Iran. Police found no connection from him to Toronto's gay village, so they just left it at that. Although I don't think police knew that he had some kind of connection to this area prior to his marriage to his now wife because he was in a four-year relationship with a transgender woman who he had met in a bar at Church in Wellesley. Two years go by, and on March 20th, 2017, 44-year-old Salim Issin was last seen near Yong Street and Bloor Street, which was west of the gay village. There was also some reports that he was last seen on April 14th near Bloor Street and Ted Rogers Way, but he wasn't reported missing until April 20th by one of his friends. Salim had no permanent address and just stayed with friends, and he just had, like, this little wheelie, like, suitcase that he kept all his belongings in. Salim was a Turkish citizen who moved to Canada to be with his partner. Unfortunately, he did struggle with addiction, uh, but he was, like, kind of working on it, and he actually just completed a certificate course in peer counseling from St. Stephen's before his disappearance as well. And, of course, guess who was a client at St. Stephen's? Bruce MacArthur who everyone trusted in this community, like support organization. And they never thought anything of Bruce. They thought he was a a great man. And um, that's where we're going to leave it for part one. This is is a big story. There's a lot to be uncovered in part two. So we're going to do that next Monday. And yeah, we're going to finish the case of Bruce MacArthur. Sweet. Fucking wild, right? Yep. Gets a little more gruesome in the next episode, so look forward to that. So, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Until next Monday, be safe and stay aware.